first Sunday after Passover, and so I was thinking about preaching a message on Christ's death and resurrection, particularly about the resurrection. In studying the book of First Thessalonians for Discipleship Camp, there is an emphasis in every chapter on the return of Christ, the rapture of the church. And also in Second Thessalonians, uh, two out of three chapters in that letter. And in, uh, in recent times, um, the, the teaching on the, on the return of Christ for his church, the rapture, has been sometimes neglected. And I've heard some Christians express this sentiment. We don't know where it is. There's all kinds of weird stuff going on out there, and there's all kinds of different opinions about this. So why don't we just preach the gospel and how to live the Christian life and just leave that alone? Well, there, there's some corollaries here. There were some in this church in Corinth, for example, who, who said, uh, we don't believe that there's going to be a resurrection of our physical bodies. That's not necessary. Now, this was part of Greek philosophy, some Greek philosophy that, that thought that the body, the flesh, and everything we do in the flesh is, is not important at all anyway. Only thing that's important is the mind, the soul, the spirit. And so why would we even want a resurrection of the body? So that was some of the, the thoughts that were going around. And Paul spoke so strongly against that. He says, if we are not going to be resurrected physically, then neither was Jesus Christ resurrected. And if that's true, then all of us are a bunch of pathetic losers wasting our time. So the resurrection of Christ was God's demonstration, his proclamation to the world that he had accepted Christ's sacrifice for sin. And thus, we could be forgiven and redeemed and assured of heaven. But in a similar way, the rapture of the church, the taking up of the church to heaven, is, is a vital part of the gospel. Because if all we teach is justification and sanctification and no glorification, then what's the point of the first two? So the return of Christ for his church, which we call the rapture, is vital to the gospel. And I think we'll see that this year in discipleship camp as we work through the letter to the Thessalonians. But I thought I would return again to 1 Timothy as I'm approaching the uh, busy season in my work and it may be the worst ever, and and time is so difficult to come by, and strength is so difficult to come by. Uh, I thought I better work ahead here in First Timothy while I still have the strength to do so. So let's let's turn to the letter to First Timothy, and we'll review a little from from chapter four. In the opening part of this chapter, he warns that in in later times. There, people are going to fall away from, from faith. And he is talking about people we know. People whom we once thought highly of, as, or at least we, 
recognize them as brothers and, or sisters in Christ. And then at some later time, here they went off into something weird. And we've all seen that. We probably all know people who once were seemed sound in the faith and then they've gone away. And Paul warned the believers here at this church in Ephesus, where, where Timothy is, is at, uh, some years previous, you can read about it in Acts chapter 20, he says, grievous wolves will arise, and there will be those who come up right from among your church, right from amidst you, who are going to teach perverse things. I'm warning you about that. And some of that was already going on here these years later when he leaves Timothy there to help straighten some of this out and try to deal with some of that. So then in in verse six he emphasizes the importance of sound doctrine. Okay? Don't go off from the the sound doctrine of the faith that you were taught from the beginning. Off after some new thing, some new theory, some new book, some new teacher that's got something that he wants you to follow. Don't do that. But be constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. In verse 9 he says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. And that's a uh, an emphasizer that he uses a number of times in uh, in writing to Timothy, he's talking about what he just said prior to that, and then he concludes also in verse 10 uh, re- with regard to sound doctrine and being firm in the faith. It's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance, for it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And so the message to us is don't get turned aside from that. In, in chapter 1, you remember, he uses this statement, and this is a, when he says, it's a trustworthy statement, he means, listen up, get this. So in chapter 1, he said in verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. And we have a portion of that verse on the wall here. In uh, chapter 3, he said, It's a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It's a fine work he desires to do. And then he went on to talk about that. And then we have the verse here we just read in chapter 4. In turning over a couple of pages into 2 Timothy and verse 11, he says this again. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him, and so forth. He, he uses this same language when he wrote to Titus. Went a couple more pages further. In Titus chapter 3, he says, This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things I want to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So Christians are, are to be known for a, much, for a number of things, and one of those is doing good deeds to help one another. If you spend your life looking only after your own interests, which it is our natural fleshly inclination to do, you're not fulfilling that. 
You got to be able to get your eyes up, notice other people, see them, actually see them, and care about them. So it's a trustworthy statement, he says. He says this often in verse 11. He said, prescribe these things, meaning command them again and again and again. In verse 12, he says, don't let anybody look down on your youthfulness. No. At this point, Timothy's in his 40s. Okay? But he's been left behind to straighten out problems in, in an assembly and some of those are coming from the elders, so the older gray-haired men, to which Timothy might feel a little intimidated. He's a single guy, never married, no family. He's, he's maybe 10, 20 years younger than, than some of these men, who are some of those who are even who are causing trouble. And so he might be a little intimidated by that. And Paul encourages him not to let anyone look down on his youthfulness, but rather in speech, how you talk among your friends, and all of us can take this to heart. Even if we're you know, only teenagers, how do, how do we talk when we're talking with our, with our buddies and our friends? In speech, conduct, how we behave. And love and faith and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Okay? So if We've named the name of Christ and said, I'm a Christian. Then you need to act like it because if you don't, that makes Jesus look bad. The public reading of the scriptures is encouraged in verse 13. Now, when this is being written so many centuries ago, everybody didn't have their own copy of the scriptures. The New Testament was just being written. But the Old Testament scriptures were not found in everybody's home like they are today. Now, we have multiple hard copies of the Bible. We have the scriptures on our phone. I've got at least two versions myself uh, on my phone, and you can push a button. They'll even read it, out, read it to you out loud if you want. So we have that. But in those days, they did not. Maybe the only place you could hear the Bible, know what it said, is if you came to, uh, you gathered with the assembly on, on Sunday morning and heard the scripture read. So he says, keep on doing that. So paying attention to reading of the Bible. Now, if you have your own copy, and we all do, read it. It's very important. Don't neglect spiritual gifts, he says in verse 14. And in uh, verse 16, he says, watch out for yourself. Pay attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Okay? So the, the fruit, the productivity of your ministry is going to depend upon these things. Stay true to the word of God. Stay soundly in, in sound doctrine. And watch your life example. Now in chapter 5, we come to, this is a book about, uh, this chapter is a chapter about honor. So you could give a title for 1 Timothy 5 as honor in the assembly. So in the, in the first two verses, we have some general statements about how we are to honor one another. Then he spends a, a, a number of verses talking about widows and honoring widows. And then in the last few verses of the, of the chapter, honoring elders. 
So we'll see how far we get here, and, and, and uh, the real difficult passages come towards the end of the chapter, so if I don't get that, Michael will clear it all up for you. <laughs> Honoring one another, 1 Timothy 5, 1-2. He says this, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. So, he's, he's, this is a very short statement here, but he is saying it, and, and, and think how this is applying immediately to Timothy. He's, he's got to deal with some problem people, and some of them are much older than him. And so he says, don't sharply rebuke or, or strike as with a slap or maybe only verbally, an older man. Don't do that. But rather appeal to him as a father. So speak to him in with gentleness and kindness. And to younger men as brothers. So other men who are more your, your peers, treat them as brothers. The older women, like mothers, maybe you could say grandmothers, and women who are your peers, as sisters in all purity. So it's important how we relate to one another in 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 the the, the course of. of of studying things in the scripture and sometimes uh, arguing about them or maybe sometimes disagreeing about them, we've got to be careful how we go about that. We have to be to treat one another with honor. So what does it mean to honor someone? Well, it, honor implies giving preference or recognizing value in that person. That's very important. Now, in business, of course, we know that's very important. So if you're running your own business and you're relating to someone who is a customer or prospective customer, you treat them with respect. You show them some, some preference. You, you uh, care about their opinions and, and what they want and what they expect. Now, if you don't do that, <laughs> you're going to be out of business. So we see that's important for that, but that's important in all areas of life. So in, in Philippians, for example, he tells us not merely to look out for our own interests, but for the interests of others, and to consider another as more important than myself. So, so honor means to, to recognize a worth in another person, to grant a preference. Well, the most familiar expression with regard to honor in all the Bibles that we know is honor your father and mother, right? Now, if you were to do a little concordance search, you will find that that appears a number of times in the Old Testament, but it's also quoted a lot in the New Testament. Honor your father and mother. So how do you do that? We're trying to get, always want to get out of the abstract and into the concrete. Okay, how do you show honor to your parents? Think about that for a minute. Uh, it involves uh, certainly 
giving them some of your time, going to see them. It involves how you speak to them and how you treat them. Okay? It involves sometimes giving your help to them. And if we're talking about elderly parents, and we're going to talk about older people here in this chapter, it involves other things. So honoring your father and mother is a very practical command. And it's very important. And, and it's repeated so many times, it's important to God. And sometimes we might think, well, there's a lot of things more important than that. God doesn't always think the way we do. So keep that in mind. So sometimes honor involves compensation, money. Uh, that certainly happens in taking care of, of, of parents who are advanced in years. Okay. Let's uh, just think of a couple other scriptures here uh, with regard to honor. Uh, how about this one? And this one we should turn over there and read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians 12, verses 23 and 24. And here he's talking about spiritual gifts. But what he's, what he's emphasizing here is that every member of the body, every member of the assembly, no matter how young, even as young as you tell us, are important. And you have a, a place, a role to play and, and something to do that is for the good of the whole body. But here in these verses he says, and, and uh, those members of the body, verse 23, which we deem less honorable, meaning eh, less important. On these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. And in the in the discussion here, you remember the more prominent public gifts, such as prophecy, which he mentions is the, is the chief gift of all, delivering revelation from God. What could be better than that? And and teaching from behind the pulpit. Everybody sees you, everybody hears you. But what about those who are not doing any of that real public upfront are they not important? No, they're very important. And so we are to show honor to them. We're to recognize their worth and their value and their place. In, in uh, <clears throat> the chapter we're, we're dealing with here in First Timothy, he's going to talk about showing honor to elders. <coughs> in chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. So think about slaves. Show honor to their master. Well, how do they do that? Well, their attitude, okay, their their speech and their behavior, where they would show honor to their master. So a Christian, a Christian slave is to be careful to do that. Why? Because in doing that to, say, an unsaved master, 
He is giving testimony to Christ and he's making Jesus look good. And so he says here, so that our doctrine, the, the gospel, will not be spoken against. So in, a, in another way, you could say that the, the, the Christian worker, the Christian airman, the Christian employee should not have a rep, uh, have a reputation of being lazy, uh, quarrelsome, complaining, and, and so on and so forth. But it, it's important that you recognize you're not only representing yourself, if you've named the name of Christ, you're representing him too. And you don't want to make him look bad. He wouldn't like that either. So this is what honor is, because now we're going to turn a corner here into a more lengthy passage here. In, uh, and this is honoring widows, 1 Timothy 5, 3 to 16. He says, honor widows who are widows indeed. Now, what does he mean by widows indeed? Either the woman's husband has died or he hasn't. Is she a widow or not? Well, no, that's not what it means. The, the modifier there indeed means someone who's definitely left alone. Not just that she's a widow and her husband has passed away, but that she doesn't have family there to support her. Okay? She has, uh, she's really dependent. So we start with that. A widow who does not have family. So what's the importance of family in this? How do they figure it? Well, he says in verse 4, if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now, there's a number of things in this, in this verse that we need to, you know, take notice of. Uh, this language there at the end, this is acceptable in the sight of God. One of the ways to understand that is to say, this is the minimum that God expects from you. And you don't want to come short here. So, and, and, the, and the scripture here is, talk, is, is talking about saved or unsaved. Family should take care of family. That doesn't always happen. But certainly in the church, that ought to be the case. So if a widow has children or grandchildren... They must learn to practice this piety in regard to their family responsibilities. And if you don't want to miss something here in this section, when he talks about family, he's not keeping that narrow as to immediate family. That's an expression we use. But grandparents, aunts, cousins, relatives, well, yeah, we can say I'm responsible for my kids, they're responsible for me, but, you know, everybody else should just take care of themselves. Nah, the Lord doesn't look at it quite that way. The scripture doesn't present it that way. Family is a bigger thing. So keep that in mind. So he says here that they ought to make some return to their parents. We are familiar with the expression today, give back. Now, sometimes I really don't like that, because in our, in our time, we are also afflicted with one of the most empty, 
vacuous, meaningless, pretend to say something, but it doesn't expression, um, perhaps ever. And that is the one, are you ready for it? And it's creeping into Christian vocabulary everywhere. Make a difference. Make a difference pretends to say something, but it doesn't really say anything at all. Uh, in some sense, that the give back expression we've seen in popular usage is a little bit the same way, but there is some truth to that. What it implies is you have been given something, and so you have a moral obligation to give back. So now, there are some who have, have said, well, since uh, you had the advantage of public school driving on public roads and streets that were paid for by tax dollars, therefore, the government has a right to expect you to give back to them. Well, that's, we're not going to go there. That's, that, is, that is false. No. We're not slaves of the state and are required to give back. But there are other moral situations where we ought to give back. So here's one. Your parents gave you life. We'll start with that. Um, but I, I like to look at it as, as a 2020 principle. The first 20 years, your parents help you. At birth, 100%. Feed you, clothe you, change the diaper, so on and so forth. And in that first 10 years, you slowly, gradually decrease the amount of dependence. And it begins to accelerate. When you get past that halfway mark, it really accelerates. And so in your, in your later teen years, what is the role of parents? It might be described as oversight and advice. Okay? So we're not totally ready to launch off on our own. But, you know, that's the goal. You'd be able to do that. Oversight and advice. So we go from complete dependence in, in every physical way to oversight and advice. When we get to the other end of life, you flip that around. Derek? Then you start with a little oversight. You know, keep an eye on me. If I, you know, need a little help, you take care of me. And, and we need to do that with our parents. Now, for most of our, of our parents, you know, maintain as good health as they can and with all the advantages we have to help ourselves today, you may never need to do more than that. But you need to look in on them, look after them, check them out. Everything going all right? You managing everything okay? Uh, I remember when I first uh, began to look into my parents' finances and saw the checkbook is a mess and uh, eventually had to take that over uh, completely myself. My, my dad's filing system was put it in the envelope, stick it in the shoebox on the stairs. <laughs> so uh, things were in a little bit of a disarray. In some cases, your responsibility to your parents will, will come down like it is maybe for a early, early teen. You still need a lot of parental involvement in your life. 
There are things you can't do by yourself. And for a very few, and this is a very few, it goes all the way down to the beginning, where you have to bathe them, dress them, feed them. Heaven forbid, even diaper them. Okay? Um, and it's interesting that most of us in this room that I have knowledge of have been involved in that in some, to some extent in our life already. So uh, I know some of the things that Jonathan has shared about his family and what you have shared, your, your parents and so forth, been involved in caring for grandparents. Okay? And Jonathan's family has done that as well. I know that Al and Connie initially moved to Minot and one of the the reasons for that was to take care of elderly parents, a, a widowed mother. Okay, we came to North Dakota for that purpose, and so so this is something that's very familiar to us. So he says we ought to give a return to our parents. So they take care of you the first twenty, you take care of them in the last twenty. Okay, twenty twenty. Remember that. And he says something very sobering in verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now where else in the New Testament have you heard Paul use the expression worse than an unbeliever? to the letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There was a man engaged in a kind of immorality that even the pagans didn't do. He says, worse than the unbelievers. Well, the point of what you want to see here is that not taking care of your family is a serious matter to God. It really is. So, in verse 5 again, he says, now, she who is a widow indeed, one who's really left alone, she doesn't have family to take care of her, and she's really, really dependent, and has fixed her hope on God, and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. So she's a, a woman with a godly reputation, and this isn't all she does, but this is an example of her, of her Christian faith and testimony. She's depending on the Lord, uh, to take care of her in this time of life. Her husband is, has passed away and she has no, no family. Now, how might this happen? Well, sometimes there, there just is no, really, literally, no family left alive. But we saw all the way back in Acts chapter 6, the very beginning of the church, that there were a lot of widows that the church was, was taking care of. Now, one of the reasons why there were so many widows is that faith in Christ is offensive to many, and sometimes families are divided over this. So, for example, even before Jesus' uh, crucifixion, the, the leaders in Jerusalem had said, anybody who, who professes that Jesus is the Messiah should be put out of the synagogue. And, and anyone then who is a devout or observant Jew is obligated to have nothing to do with it. So in some cases... Parents were separated from their children who didn't want to have anything to do with them anymore. Now, we see that sometimes happen 
in her life for other kinds of reasons, too. I see a lot of divided families, a lot of, a lot of quarreling and fighting, and that's, that's tragic. But So some, a woman who is a widow, indeed, might be uh, someone who does have children somewhere, but because she's a believer and they aren't, they, they're not going to take care of her, they're not going to help her. In that case, the church ought to, look at, ought to step in and take care of such a one. But look at her, her, uh, her testimony here. She's fixed her hope on God. Now, as an alter, as, as a, in opposition to this, if she is one who gives herself to wanton pleasure, is dead even while she lives. So there, if, uh, a woman who's been widowed and then turns to a life of, let's hit the casinos, let's party, and there are people who do this. Uh, and I, I have some personal experience with friends who had had this experience. But uh, the church is not obligated to take care of someone who's living a godless life. Okay, But a woman who has put her faith in God, depending on the Lord, and has this solid reputation, you ought to take care of her. In, in verse 9, he mentions... Uh, a list, and I think this is the type of thing that was happening also in Acts chapter 6, the beginning of the church, it says a, a widow is to be put on the list, I mean, as, as one whom the church is going to take care of. We're going to, we're going to take care of her needs. Only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. Well, let's look at some of those things there. Uh, not less than 60 years old. So, not the younger widows. Now, it, doesn't, it does not stop anyone from, from helping someone who's much younger than that on a contemporary basis. But as far as the, the assembly itself taking the responsibility for the support of one, she should be not less than 60 years old. So she has instructions. Been the wife of one man. We've seen that language before in chapter 3. And here I think it clearly is, is speaking of this woman having had the reputation of being a faithful wife while her husband was alive. And now she finds herself in this place. A reputation for good works. And, and all those things in verse 10. Where, when do you build those things? <laughs> Years ago, you know. When you, when you arrive at the age of 60, I mean, if you're going to have do those things, you've done them for 30, 40 years. So it's important to pay attention to how you live now because it will come back to you <laughs> and later on in life. A reputation for good works. She brought up children. Okay? And some of these are, these are examples of what it means to be a, a woman of, of high reputation. It would not preclude someone who had never born children but still find yourself alone. And that's even more likely if you don't have, have children or grandchildren who might take care of you in your old age. You're really left out. Okay? But in general, she brought up children. She's shown hospitality to strangers. I want to get a notice that. 
She's shown hospitality to strangers if she's washed the sage feet. So the washing of the feet is a custom that would be given to a to someone who's a visitor. But here he's referring to the saints or believers. So she has welcomed believers into her home. She has a reputation for this, for hospitality. Now we're gonna we're gonna return to our study in hospitality at our house tonight at six o'clock. Um, one, one of the things we do is we invite everyone to come and enjoy some hospitality. We have all some food together, and we visit together, and then we open the scriptures and talk about some things. So you're invited to uh, to come to our house tonight for that. Um, <clears throat> showing hospitality to strangers. Now, when, uh, when Brenda and I first met, I was a widower with four little children. But uh, on a Monday of this particular week, a brother drives 100 miles to come to see me. He's concerned about me. And we visit for a while, and uh, he tells me, he said, man, you're in bad shape. You need to quit your job, because I had, I had taken a job at a bank after I resigned from my accommodation. And he said, you need to quit your job, farm out the kids, and get away for two weeks before you crack up. And I gave him this kind of deer-in-the-headlights look. Oh, yeah, I know I'm in tough shape here, but I can't just leave my job. i got to take care of my family. And uh, he shook his head. When he went home, he says, that guy's not listening to me. Well, on Wednesday that same week, two days later, I met Brenda. And two days after that, I lost my job through a corporate downsizing. And so, okay, I guess maybe I can get away and get a rest. Now, where will I go? And uh, a friend of Brenda's from Canada, Ron Schultz, and his wife were down there. And they said, uh, well, hey, why don't you come up to Canada where we live? Um, some friends of ours have gone away on a trip. Their house is just up the hill behind us. You could stay in their house. You'd be all alone. You'd be quiet. You could rest. And said, who is this that can volunteer somebody else's house when they're gone away on a trip to a stranger? So I accepted. I went there. And uh, spent most of the week there before the people came home. And then I got to spend time with them. Delightful couple. Jim and Margaret Blair. Now, Margaret Blair is a woman who's on a short list of, of women, of, of outstanding women, women of extraordinary spirit that I have met and known in my life. And, and, and these women I'm referring to would be... Uh, Going back to the first verses of the chapter, older women as spiritual mothers in a sense. But Margaret was an extraordinary woman. Uh, if you spent some time with Margaret Blair, you would be encouraged, cheered up. You would probably laugh, even if you came there with tears. And, and you would go away feeling loved. She just had that way about her. And always having folks in her home. So they would even let a strange guy from from Montana come up there and stay in their house when they were gone away on a trip. Who does that? But uh, So the other day, Brenda called Jim Blair up in Canada to visit with him. Margaret passed away last year. Jim turned 100 last month. But So she had a nice visit with him. His hearing is getting a little... Little, little dim. Yeah, she had to repeat herself sometimes. Her eye, he said his eyesight's not so good. 
But uh, otherwise, his mentally he's sharp as could be. No, when uh, when Brenda and I were going to get married, and I asked Jim to do to perform the ceremony, he said, "You know, I've never done that before." He said, "I, I always." kind of pass that off to one of the other elders. And the reason why was, Jim said he would be very hurt if somebody that he married later went on and got a divorce. And so he tried to avoid that. But he consented to marry Brenda and I, so Brenda reminded him, we're still together. So he's happy about that. But... Uh, Jim and Margaret. Margaret would be, and she was never a widow. Jim's the widower, but she would have been a woman that is described in verse 9 and 10. Married to Jim a little over 75 years. The only people I know they've been married that long. That is that is amazing. My parents only made 61 uh, before Dad passed away. But she was a woman like that and excelled in hospitality to, to uh, strangers, to visitors, to, to people she knew, there there was a household where you were welcome. So much so that Ron could say, hey, you can stay in their house. <laughs> okay, so I did. She's devoted herself to every good work. In verse 11, he says, why not the younger widows, younger than 60? Why not? Well, he says, but refuse to put younger widows on the list for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. So, and here you get into some of the idea, and we're not familiar with this, but for a a widow over 60 with this solid reputation to be put on the list and because she has no family or anyone to take care of her and no resources of her own to do this, she, she is taking a pledge or a vow to uh, serve the assembly in whatever way she can, such as, up above there, fixed her hope on God and, and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. She's to be that kind of woman. And, and to continue, no doubt, in the things that, Good works that she has been doing all along. Okay, but so she takes a takes a vow or a pledge, and that's going to mean, all right, I don't plan to get married again. No, sometimes people over sixty do get married again. But the younger widows eventually are going to desire a husband again and want to be married. And sometimes, and from my experience as a uh, single man in, in, my, in my 30s after having been married, uh, I, I want to I warn you here that your widowed and divorced people are at high risk. They're vulnerable. The church really needs to take care of them and look after them. And and uh, sexual temptation is, a, is especially high at that time. And you might think that, well, you're, you're older, more mature, you've got all this, you're, you're certainly better off than you were when you were younger. And, and I'm going to tell you, 
having become single again at 35. It was a lot harder to remain pure than it was when I was 16, 18, 20, and so forth, and in the Navy with every temptation imaginable around you. But purity was harder in my 30s. After Bible college, seminary, commended to the Lord's work, involved in this, I figured, I, I should be able to do this. But I found it was hard. And I had to ask for help. So watch carefully. Take care of people in your family and in the assembly who are widowed or even divorced. Take care of people who are separated by military deployment. Also, very important. Take care of them. But the younger widows are not to be put on the list because they're probably going to want to get married again. And he even says here in verse 14, Therefore I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. And this is not a, a command saying that, that every widow under 60 ought to get married again. That's not what he means here. But in general, you ought to do that. Have to consider that. And so the church wouldn't take someone on uh, to support with a pledge uh, to remain single and to serve the, the church younger than 60 for that reason. So the younger, some of the dangers too of a younger widow, if she were uh, taken on to support by the church at that time, they might learn to be idle, verse 13. Go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. But if you're involved in taking care of children, running a household, doing all these good works, eh, you're not going to have time for that. Okay? So, he says about some. Some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Some have already fallen away. So if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, notice that's in the plural, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. So how many widows are in your family? You might know some. My Aunt Linda's a widow. My Aunt Melva is a widow. Now, they all have family that are taking care of them. But these are not a part of my immediate family, but that extended family again. So, so we need to take care of our family and to, uh, especially to honor widows who are widows indeed. In verse 17 and following, which, uh, Michael can take a look at. He talks about honoring elders. And so we're, we're not even going to get into that. We'll just leave that one go. And uh, we'll pick that up later. So what to take away from here? Apply to your life. Whatever season of life you're in, be mindful of what's coming ahead. Be thankful for what your parents have done for you. 
Keep in mind that you may need to give back to them at a later time. And God is pleased with that. It's the minimum he expects. All right, let's, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for uh, the family as you have designed it. Boy, families can have trouble. They can be problems, but they can be wonderful as well. God, we're thankful for good examples and godly examples in our family. Sometimes taking care of family members is a really difficult thing to do. God, we pray you'd help us to do that, even in those cases, as a way to give honor to the gospel and to the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we all have our families by birth and by blood, but we also have the family of God. Lord, let, help us to remember to look after one another and care for one another, to show hospitality to one another and to engage in good works. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.